Welcome to Being Human, Professor Chris Moles, Director of the Doctor of Management Programme at the University of Hertfordshire, and author and co-author of multiple books, um, applying an understanding of complexity to how to lead and manage organisations more effectively. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm honoured to have you on. So I thought we'd, perhaps we'd start with definitions and, I mean, Complexity is, a, is obviously a familiar word, but how would you describe it uh, in simple terms um, in the way that you use the word in your work? Simple terms, complexity. Hmm. That's quite <laughs> a challenge. Okay, so uh, I, I would say that uh, complexity has become very popular. And there are a variety of ways of understanding it. I suppose what we're trying to do on the Doctor of Management program is to keep complexity complex. So one of the tendencies of management, I think, is to assume that you can manage complexity, that you can create the conditions for complexity to arise where complexity is then understood to be something that we want, or that you can guide it, or that you can uh, steer it in some way. So what we're trying to do at the University of Hertfordshire with uh, a group of experienced managers who are doing their doctorate with us part-time is to stay with the complexity of complexity and assume that you can influence other people, but you might be in charge but not in control. So complexity affects you as a manager. It's not something that you unleash on somebody else to the effect that you've already predetermined. Right. And, uh, and certainly my limited understanding, I suppose, of this field, having a, a, a lay reader of, the, of this, is that certainly that part of it, I suppose, for me at a human level, is, the, is kind of the most difficult aspect of it, is that we, we may be less, much less in control of our destiny or, or, or our ability to predict and control outcomes than, than we might think. Is that... Is that reasonable but people find it yeah. difficult yes i think they do and i think they find it rather identity threatening so if you're a manager or a leader and you're told that as a manager and a leader you, you have to deliver things or control things and actually you can't guarantee delivering things in the way that you'd like to then what are you there for i always think that uh, when i work with groups of managers uh, the group usually divides a third, a third, a third. So a, a third of people are simply looking at their agendas, wondering when I'm going to stop and when the next person is going to come in. A third of people are actually quite hostile to what I'm saying, that they might be in charge but not in control because they've got an MBA or they've uh, been on a management course where they're told that they can create the conditions for everybody to thrive or to be positive. And the final third of people usually uh, are very pleased that there, are, there is a vocabulary and a set of ideas which describe their everyday experience. There's a sense of relief for them. And actually, it's usually from that final third of managers that we attract new students to the, to the Doctor of Management program, because what we're saying resonates with their experience. Right. And so is it... I wonder if there's something personality-driven in terms of the type of person who are willing to take on these, these ideas. 
I think that that may be true. I mean, we are more or less comfortable with the idea of of uncertainty, of not being in control. I mean, there are big discussions elsewhere about whether human beings need to die, for example. You know, we could engineer a human being that lives forever. That kind of anxiety about not being in control of one's destiny, I think, affects lots of areas of human experience. And certainly in the workplace where we've come to expect that managers can control things and that there are best practices for controlling things, which is not to say that management doesn't have things to say about how people organize. So I wouldn't want to imply either that there's nothing you can do as a manager or a leader, but I suppose what we're recommending is undertaking the role of manager or leader with some humility accepting that you're going to get some of what you want some of what you don't want and some of what you don't expect right and actually you talk a, a little bit about that in well certainly in the in the book strategic management and organizational dynamics this idea and i'm sure it comes up elsewhere this idea of anxiety producing we i think you describe social objects or this idea that that, that anxiety drives a lot of our processes and 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 then that and and we sort of latch on to some some ideas driven by anxiety yeah i mean i, th I think the process of trying to get things done with other people in the group is inherently ident uh, uh, identity threatening and anxiety producing so uh there are trends in groups of wanting to belong of wanting to identify with each other of wanting to cooperate but at the same time there are also rivalries and jealousies and uh, anxieties about not being included or worse being excluded from the group and i suppose uh, one of the distinctive things about the body of ideas we call complex responsive processes is it takes those psychological aspects of organizing seriously as good data if you like so if you're a manager or a leader and you're trying to think about what's going on in the group that you're managing or leading then one set of data that should be of interest to you is the way people are behaving or talking about how they feel or talking about what matters to them that's also good data to think about mm. because strong strong feelings arise in groups so one of the key authors that we draw on, Norbert Elias, who Steven Pinker describes as the most famous sociology sociologist he'd never heard of, was himself informed by Freud, thinking about um, the strong emotions that arise for people in groups, particularly in times of change. And he was concerned, Norbert Elias was concerned that we have we've been much more successful in controlling nature than we have in controlling ourselves so in thinking about um, the dynamics the the intergroup dynamics of trying to get things done together and seeing how we are driven by deep-seated fears and anxieties and coming to understand those better can only result in better ways of organizing and more skillful ways of dealing with each other mm. And and you're saying that that as a, is an important skill for managers and leaders. So it's not just about 
getting that data, but also being in a position to to read a group or or an individual from that perspective. Yeah, that's right. And on the doctoral management program, I suppose one of the distinctive things that we do is that we treat the group as a whole as a uh, as a psychodynamic research community. So we pay attention to ourselves as a group. We meet four times a year for four days. And one of the ways that we organize during those four-day residentials every quarter is to sit in the tradition of the Institute of Group Analysis. So Saturday morning at nine, Sunday morning at nine, Monday morning at nine, we sit for an hour and a half without an agenda and without anybody in charge. And we simply talk about what we need to talk about as a group. And that might be people joining or people leaving or people having a struggle with their work, their research work, or perhaps their work outside the research community. And we talk about the effect on us as a group of dealing with people struggling or leaving or joining. And I would say that that group gives people a very direct experience of dealing with uncertainty. We don't know what's going to come up. People uh, fall out with each other. Uh, there is a rush to support people who are struggling so all kinds of tendencies and groups are played out in the here and now and it gives us a chance to think about what that means for us what that means for us in our workplaces we experience ourselves if you like showing up in that group and it gives us an insight into our own practice what are our habitual tendencies of dealing with these kinds of issues here and now and then perhaps back in the workplace at the same time so I, I've written about that in a journal article last year, actually, about how that's a really good forum for experiencing uncertainty firsthand and actually becoming more skillful at dealing with the anxiety of not knowing, which mm -hmm. I think is an everyday phenomenon for managers and leaders in fast-changing organisations. Hmm. And what about those people listening who are going to react to that with, oh, God, you know, that just sounds like navel-gazing, you know, we've got products to ship yeah how could this possibly serve us surely you need to be focused on the on the goal here and that's uh, you know producing or what whatever it might be yeah uh, i mean that's a good question and, and people do have to get things done and this is not an argument for spending all our time thinking about what's going on but if we spend no time thinking about what what's going on then we simply repeat what we've always done so if you're a high-paid manager or a leader and you you're going to say that you don't have time to think or to reflect on what's going on, then what are you being paid for? What is it that you're doing that's, that anybody else couldn't do if it's simply about delivering things? So, and the, the word delivery is a really interesting word, isn't it? It was, um, it was uh, very popular in the, in the Blair government. He, he had a head of deliverology. I can't remember the guy's name. He's written, written a book. But the idea that what an organisation is doing is say delivering change as if change was some kind of parcel in the back of a van that you simply bundle up and take somewhere rather than change for example being a process that provokes very strong feelings in people which creates winners and losers in organizations which creates great uncertainty in organizations and might destroy sets of relationships where which might have been very productive in getting things done in the organization the idea that managers and leaders should pay no attention to that because it's all about the task is, is rather naive. And I think 
probably fulfills what Norbert Elias was concerned about, that we spend a lot of time doing things, but not, not a lot of time thinking about the doing of things and what that evokes in people. Right. If we wanted to be more if we wanted to be more scientific about the human process of organizing, then feelings would be one of the things that we pay attention to. Not at the exclusion of everything else, of course. Right. And that yeah. And I suppose I suppose that does happen to some degree, but it tends not to be formalized in organizations, right? I mean, we will have this kind of gossip. Well, there's the gossip about how people are doing and, and, and who's in and who's out and who's up and who's down. Mm. That that happens. But I suppose what doesn't happen so much is that being done formally and saying, okay, let's create a, just like you've just described that you do with your group, let's create a space where there's no agenda and we just explore what's going on. I suppose that's much less common. It is less common, and um, I think uh, sometimes when I do consultancy, I find uh, organisations which are prepared to think about that because they get stuck. They realise that they're simply repeating what they've always done. They find themselves in a, in a mess, and they invite me and colleagues in to help them think about how they got into the mess that they've got into and what it is that they might be doing um, in a repetitive way. And I would uh, say that the uh, senior management in my university have been doing that with me and some colleagues over the last past, past couple of years. They realize that they exist in new times. They realize that the top team and its functioning is critical in the development of the university. And they've set aside two days a year, every year for the past two years. And I think there's gonna be another year next year when they do the same, where they want to think about their own functioning. So it's not certainly not by no means the only thing that they're doing, but if they don't spend any time at all thinking about it, then how can they possibly help other teams work if they can't work as a team themselves? So mm. I'd have to say I would commend them for, for putting that as, as one of the priorities that they need to, to tackle. Right. Because, yes, I mean, strategy away days or off-sites are, are relatively common, but... In my experience, they're, they're often fairly structured days and a lot of the focus is on future strategy and plans. And maybe they'll talk about values and what the company stands for. But I suppose that completely open-ended conversations would happen more outside of the formal setting. That's exactly right, yeah. So I think people have the conversations that they need to have often at the bar yeah. or at breakfast time. And then what they might do is hire a facilitator to, to concrete over every opportunity that they might have of having unanticipated or perhaps necessary conversations with, with, with each other. And how many, I mean, I used to be a consultant myself. How many, how many consultancies have I done where we cover the walls with flip charts with, of idealizations, long lists of things that we need to do to change the organization for the good? And then when we go back into work on Monday mornings, or, or it goes back to exactly what it was before we had the two-day away day. So human beings and groups are very good at producing lists of things that they ought to do. I, I know that I ought to eat fewer crisps and have fewer gin and tonics of an evening. It doesn't necessarily stop me doing it. 
So when do when do groups of people create the opportunity to talk about what's going on between them and how they're working and what they think about what they're working, which might I can see why they might um, be anxious about it because it can surface tensions, it can surface conflict. So I would say that the other thing that's going on in those unstructured meetings and meetings we have in the Doctor of Management is um, people have the experience of depathologizing conflict. Differences do emerge between people, and that's okay. So if we're committed to get, getting the work done together, we can disagree, sometimes very strongly disagree, sometimes passionately disagree, and still we can find a way forward. Very often in organizational life, I think there's um, a prohibition of disagreeing and there's a prohibition of negativity, particularly with the importation of positive psychology from across the pond, where the idea is if we inquire into the good or into the positive, then more positive things will happen. I think that becomes can become a bit of a tyranny in organizations where critique or feeling negative or feeling pissed off with each other is banned. You can't express it because people are anxious about what might happen if you did do that. And of course, groups can be very dangerous places as well. So um, I've also worked with lots of very dysfunctional teams where there's a huge degree of conflict. So it's not something to be entered into lightly. But one argument about um, innovation and creativity is that it arises through the exploration of difference. Very often there's an injunction in organizations to line up, to align. Alignment is a word that's used a lot in strategic thinking. You have to align with the values. Well, they're also aligning in North Korea. And an explanation of how creativity and novelty arises is not alignment, but the exploration of difference that causes new things to emerge in, in organizations. And then, of course, there's the judgment, is, is it a new thing you want or a new thing that you don't want? So cheating is also innovative, if you like. Fraud is innovative and novel. And those are the sorts of things you don't want in organizations. But there's, uh, if you want to move, if you want to be dynamic, then exploring differences is something that all organizations need to get good at. Right. And I suppose what comes to mind right now as a as a very contemporary example is this question at the moment about liberal bias in i don't know if you followed any of that amongst the social media companies um where there's a there's a sort of expectation on colleagues um that they align to use your words around a certain set of values and uh i think jack dorsey just a few days ago accepted and i think he was the first of those leaders that they have a liberal bias in twitter and um, he's claiming that it doesn't doesn't impact any of their um, algorithms and so on, but nonetheless, he's he's accepting that it exists. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess we all we all have our biases, and uh, these are not easily set aside. Um, and uh, being able to sit with people that one strongly disagrees with and go on exploring that difference is, is not an easy thing to do. Right. And 
I mean, is it something like, you know, it's anxiety producing enough to be in a group, let alone to engage in a conversation where we might start being open about where our differences lie? Yeah. And I think it's something that needs to be practiced. So um, some groups are very skilled and practiced at spending some of their time, perhaps during their regular weekly meetings, just talking about what, what's on people's minds. And some people aren't practiced and need to develop the practice. So it's a bit like a muscle. I recently did some research um, for an organization called the Leadership Foundation for Higher Education, which is now called Advance HE, which sent me off to um, interview with some colleagues, six uh, universities in the UK who were undertaking transformational change projects. So there's a big discussion about what we mean, what is transformational change and um, does all change need to be transformational and all of those sorts of questions. But one of the interesting things that, that emerged with, in all six uh, instances is the uh, creative ways that top teams in universities have found of, of having off-agenda discussions with each other and with members of staff. So the moment you have a formal meeting, like a town hall meeting, when you announce a series of changes, it has a particular dynamic to it, which evokes all kinds of conflicting emotions in people. And if you don't create opportunities then for exploring those feelings with people, then you're going to miss something that could be very important. And in each case, the top team, either as a team itself, had a kind of Monday morning check-in where they simply talked to each other about what was on their mind, or they created spaces where the uh, members of staff knew that they would be in the cafe on a Wednesday morning at nine o'clock till 10 o'clock, and anybody could turn up to see them to talk about what was on their mind. They had lots and lots of creative ways of creating space for exploration, actually, and perhaps creating space for sitting and listening to difficult things. So, for example, in all change processes, um, there are always going to be winners and losers, and the losers are going, well, everybody concerned experiences a change in identity, sometimes a threat to identity. And as a senior manager involved in that change process, you might have to sit and endure people telling you how pissed off they feel. You simply have to do it, and you have to work out a response that recognizes the pissed offness because not everybody can march together to the lighted uplands. Some people will left, be left behind or some people won't recognize themselves in the changes and will want to leave the organization and go and do something else. And that's, if you like, natural and inevitable. And those comings and goings and leavings and elevations and demotions need to be talked about. People need to make sense of it. So what, another skill you talked earlier about, one of the skills for a senior manager or a leader would be the ability to read a group and particularly, but perhaps participate in the group more skillfully. Another skill I would say for a senior manager or a leader is the ability to endure strong emotions, both yours and other people's. Mm -hmm. And to sit with the anxiety of not knowing how this is going to turn out. 
then I think there's a judgment about how much of that anxiety you share. So I think there are times when you're working with groups of people going through a period of intense change where you don't know how it's going to turn out and they don't know how it's going to turn out. And it would be appropriate to say, you know what, well, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But there will be other occasions with the same group of people where you say, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So uh, the Brexit process is an interesting process going on at the moment where you have that complete range of um, emotions being expressed by politicians and ordinary people in the street. So you have some very ardent Brexiteers saying, tell what detail, it's all going to be fine. Just believe, you know, you just got to believe. You've got other people running around saying, it's going to be a disaster, it's going to be a disaster. And Mrs. Thatcher, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. May this morning seemed to be saying, it's my way or the highway, there's only two choices. So I, I, the whole Brexit debate would be an interesting case study and thinking about the strong emotions and the conflicting emotions and the anxiety that's provoked by fundamental change. Right. And, and is there something about, let's just take Mrs. May as an example. So if she was, if she were, is, is there a suggestion perhaps that if she were a better able or, or developed skill in reading, um, I don't know if it works at this scale, but reading the sort of emergent feelings and anxieties of the nation and then reflecting that back, that, that might be useful in some way. Yes, I mean, I, I would say that probably she's not a, a very emotionally literate person in that sense. Uh, I'm not sure that she's, um, as far as I can tell, I mean, as you say, it's the kind of scale that you can't, we're all making interpretations of, people that we don't know but i was interested last night when she was interviewed uh, in, interviewed by uh, by nick robinson where she said she was a little bit irritated about people calling her leadership into into, into question you'd have to say that that didn't sound like an, an authentic expression of emotion i would say she's very very cross <laughs> but of course that there's always a political judgment to make about how much of that you reveal but nonetheless a little bit irritated when you when you look at the rictus on her face and you can see the disparity between the description of a small amount of her complete, I guess, anger or exasperation on her face. That is that that kind of uh, mismatch. I guess is always work as a senior manager or a leader when you're talking to groups of people about what you think about the change that's going on. People are, are not fools; they can pick up on on how you are, what you're thinking and feeling. So developing a fluency in groups and developing some kind of insight into what's going on for you and therefore what might be going on for them, I think is an important skill. Right. And, and again, coming back to the why, why, why is this helpful? So I get this, ex, this extra data. Why is that helpful for me? Um, well, I suppose it comes back to what is it that a manager does? What, what's a manager there for? What's a leader there for? And if you think that a leader is there to bring about the best degree of cooperation in order to achieve managerial purpose, then surely getting as many people on side and functioning together as a group is 
going to have a much better outcome for the organization than simply plowing on regardless and delivering what it said in the plan, irrespective of what people feel about it and irrespective of the damage that it does to working relationships. Surely the former is better than the, than the latter. Right. So, so it's cooperation. It's uh, maximizing the, the level of cooperation, perhaps. Um, yeah. The other it's thing... Thinking- Sorry. Go ahead. Does Go ahead. this does this link into well? I, I'm interesting what you said about creating the environment, right? And that and that that's perhaps not as easy for leaders to do as they might think it is. Mm. But where I went to in my mind with what you just described is is there something about how a leader having that set of skills allows for more divergent views to emerge, and then ultimately novel solutions and new opportunities that may have been sort of hidden in the in the medium of the, of, of the conversation there that, that, that weren't being expressed. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a possibility. Uh, it's a possibility that um, with greater self-reflection, with greater skill in groups, with a greater ability to endure negative emotions, with an enhanced understanding that conflict can be creative. Um, it could be possible then to be more innovative, to cooperate better, to um, achieve more of what you want in the organization. Um, and what would be the alternative to doing all of those things? To be brutal, to, to treat people as though they're um, cogs in your particular machine that you're trying to to run why why can't we make organizations more human i mean that's the subject of your blog your podcast isn't it well it's it's true it's true but i'm also very aware of my own bias there you know potentially i'm coming from a place which says treating people with greater empathy or or or, or as human beings is somehow more effective but maybe it isn't and i'm sort of always questioning that bias yeah and there is a danger in in thinking um so, so I am I'm aware of the uh, potential ambiguity of my intellectual position on the one hand saying one of the difficulties of management is it assumes that managers can control and predict and here am I saying well no it can't you might be in control uh, you might be in charge but not in control and now I'm offering an alternative where you can get more of what you want um, there's no guarantee but uh, why can't organizations be more human places um, where we take seriously the experience of being together, of trying to get things done, both the positive and the negative, where we can create opportunity for talking about things that matter to us, about being employees, about being human beings, as well as delivering on the plan. Why wouldn't that be a better way to organize? So I suppose I still have... um, I do have the aspiration that management can be more skillful, more thoughtful than it is generally in organizations. Mm. And uh, I hope that it would enhance organizational life and productivity, if you like, but I certainly wouldn't say that with any certainty. I, I believe it to be a better approach, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Well, actually, that's where I was going to go. Is, it, is there any evidence that this more sort of sensitive approach you might say is 
is effective in any way, right? Does it does it deliver result? Is there any evidence that suggests it might be valid as a as perspective? Yeah, uh, it's a question that comes up again and again. People say to me, "Look, you you have this." Uh, um, perspective you call complex responsive process at the University of Hertfordshire. Can you show me any organizations that have implemented this perspective? And I suppose my response is to say that this isn't um, a set of tools and techniques or um, a set of recommendations, except in the very broadest sense. So there is no organization that's applying these methods if you like it's simply a way of understanding what's already going on in organizations it's an interpretation of what management is it's the creative exercise of power and paying attention to power relationships between people in a group which causes strong emotions both for the manager and for everybody else and finding reflective space to make meaning from that so there are organizations, uh, pockets in organizations where this goes on naturally because people have a natural disposition to do it, if you like. So th this is the last third of the group of managers I was talking about at the very beginning of the interview. So when I give seminars to groups of managers about a complexity perspective, some of them are already taking a complexity perspective, they just didn't know it. They didn't have necessarily have the words and the concepts to apply to what they were doing. But there are lots of organizations, or at least pockets in organizations, where groups of people do spend time reflecting and making meaning together and thinking about what they're doing together and more or less exploring their differences. So it's already going on, although not as universally as one would like. Well, that, yeah, that was that was interesting when you first started describing it. You know that that is what happens, but often it's in the bar. Often it's when people take lunch. If they take lunch, you know, often it's when people there's a bit of gossip and a bit of politics. Like when half the meeting are there in the meeting room and the other half haven't turned up yet, it's like oh, you know, the boss yeah. isn't here. Let's have a gossip or, or whatever it might be. So a lot of it yeah. happens, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think this uh, this way of working. If we're to say that, you know. Um, one of the recommendations will be to create more reflective space. That doesn't stop the gossip, and in a way, nor should it. There will always be gossip. Mm. Some, sometimes uh, managers try to prohibit gossip as though that, were, that would be a thing. And simply what you do is you drive it out of the canteen or the gossip over the, over the coffee and into the pub where mm. people will do it in their private space anyway. So gossip is a way of making sense. It's a way of either sustaining or undermining power relationships in, a, in an organization, it will always happen. So I suppose the reflective space is an attempt to bring some, some of that, what's known as a hidden transcript, into the open, to talk about it a bit more openly, to, to find out what people are really thinking, what sense they're making of what's going on, trying to point to some of the difficulties they experienced doing their work with their colleagues. Yeah, and uh, I suppose, I mean, I suppose what where it is emerging as well in pockets is is amongst the software development community and those who are implementing agile practices. I'm not sure how aware you are of that sort of body of of work, but and there's something within that called the retrospective, which is a sort of a particular 
ceremony or particular meeting where the attempt is made at least to create an open space um but i suppose two reflections on my experience of of being a facilitator of those is one it's really hard to keep it in the diary right it's the first thing to go when things need to get delivered um when when i am in a position of facilitating that the pull to move towards solutions and what our ideal would state is is sometimes it's very difficult and i'm sort of complicit in it right i'm often the the person orchestrating the the post-its of the five things we must do um rather than just sitting in conflict um so uh no and i recognize that entirely and and i've been there myself as a a consultant Uh, and i've just actually written an article on the way that complexity gets taken up in the agile software literature which I can send to you after this interview, if you like. And there again, you have exactly the same kinds of tendencies to think that complexity is just a thing that happens in the agile project. It doesn't happen in the rest of the organization. It's a thing that managers can be in charge of so that you can have the right degree of complexity to get what you want. You can steer it this way and that, or you should embrace it. I love this word embrace. It's a word that's used university we need to embrace complexity whatever that means so there's still the hint or the assumption that somehow we can control complexity to get what we want and of course if you're building a piece of software that's what you want so of course there'll be a tendency to collapse all of this disagreement so so what are we going to do and that's quite right you still have the piece of software to build but to what degree can you keep meaning making open and ambiguity open what's what's your resource how how might you keep things open for as long as possible to see what emerges in the process of engaging with each other yeah and the the other thought that comes to mind as well is you know sort of this sort of links back to this this idea of diversity and ideas and where they happen is it i mean it's kind of a cliche that the the, the idea of the new business starts in in the pub um or over a drink and there's something about just a, a free flowing and you talk about this this skill of facilitating free flowing conversation where we don't just jump into what should we do we we just allow ideas to to sit and percolate and um without jumping necessarily immediately to what do we have to do yeah no that's right yeah hmm and, and it, you might get nowhere. So it might be, in in terms of um, instrument, instrumentalizing or producing something concrete, it might be wasted time, but it not might not be wasted time in terms of the fact that we know each other better, we understand each other better, and that makes cooperation in the future more possible, irrespective of whether we've come up with a concrete idea or not. And... And that's and that's interesting because I think as again my my experience of facilitating those reflective sessions is that quite often the, the criticism will be oh yeah you know I, well I went to the last one and I'm not sure we really got anything out of it and you know I don't want to waste my time and it's be, potentially because they're not valuing that that depth that that enhancement of the connection between the team members or yeah. just sitting together and exploring and that in itself isn't necessarily seen as valuable. Yeah. Yeah, no, productive work is based on good quality relationships. That doesn't mean necessarily they're always good. 
So two members of a team might have a good quality relationship, but they still don't like each other very much. But what they've learned is how to stay in relation despite their differences. And that um, in our kind of hyper-deterministic age where everything has to be, you have to always think in terms of concrete takeaways. And that's the other thing that I get irritated with when I... Uh, give seminars that people always want takeaways as if they're not prepared to be with me as we're exploring ideas together they want something pre-prepared they want to know where we're going in advance and universities also play into this of course in terms of the way they teach schools too it's become accepted that you need to know the learning outcomes before you even begin mm. so people are trained to think that there's going to be a concrete outcome the concrete outcome is very much a piece of paper with slides that you've just shown or whatever and therefore turn their attention away from the struggle of staying in relation or the struggle of trying to make sense together or the struggle of trying to explore what's going on between us yeah and my my hypothesis here is that the reason why organizations are successful in spite of not doing a lot of this is that they evolve these repetitive patterns which help them to become successful in a particular domain. Um, but then when that, that domain shifts and they're not able to, to, to shift, shift with it. And so the company uh, dies, but nobody learns that the reason they died was perhaps because of this, because they hadn't kept open a conversation and allow divergent views to emerge during the process of their demise. That's a sort of a hypothesis I have. Well, well that, that, that might be one thing that's going on. Another thing might, that might be going on is uh, that people get the work done despite what they're told to do rather than because of it. So I'm, I'm thinking of, um, I, I did a lecture on uh, Saturday to, to the MBA students and I asked them, um, to come up with examples where um, there was a prohibition on asking questions or um, raising critiques in public, where the managers basically said, this is what we're doing, you're on the bus or you're out of here. And what people then do is all those subversive things of they might comply publicly but actually they're still stitching behind the scenes with their colleagues, talking over the coffee, doing workarounds. Uh, so the work gets done almost despite the kind of public transcript about the way we do the work around here and what's important. The, what's important around here is delivery and outcomes and we're not interested in all this soft stuff about reflecting and making meaning. My guess would be in, in successful organizations that meaning making is going on anyway. People find ways of doing it because in order to, um, to do the work, you have to improvise. Doing work on a daily basis is a daily improvisation. It doesn't matter how tight your procedures are. Uh, there are always going to be instances where the procedures have, well, procedures always have to be interpreted and that interpretation is more or less creative. So even for organizations to stay stable, there's an enormous amount of work going on, an enormous amount of improvisational and creative work going on. In the shadows, in the corridors, in the car park even, 
in small teams where people are cooperating to get things done despite what they're being told. Right. It's always been the always been the argument about targets, for example. It's not that targets work, it's that people make them work. And sometimes they make them work by cheating. So for example, um, if you have a four-hour waiting time target in accident and emergency, and you can see that you're going to breach it, somebody's going to go over the four hours, then what you might do is discharge them into the corridor and then admit them as a new patient. So you've, you've made your target work. And that's what happens in schools, that's what happens in universities. People find creative ways of making the regime that's being described publicly work but they're still making meaningless they're improvising with their colleagues they're still coming up with productive ideas which may not be publicly discussed right. what we call gaming often the gaming yeah but there's some there's also gaming for the good Sometimes people working in organisations for the good of the organisation, despite what the organisation tells them to do. Right. Right. Reminds me, and I, I can't remember the reference now, but if I find it, I'll put it in the in the notes. But there was a, um, a description of, uh, we're talking about hospitals, this one, I can't remember exactly what they were targeting it, but some, certainly some improvement in healthcare. And what they found really effective was to take one nurse out of the nursing pool, and this particularly pertained to nurses, and had her rotate around the nursing teams and just set up reflective sessions where the nurses reflect on how they're working and how they might improve it. And they found that that was the yeah. most effective way in terms of improving outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and when they took this nurse out of that role and put her back into the to the general law they saw the, the the performance go down again that was the one piece of evidence i'd seen for this more reflective approach having an impact i can't claim that story uh, for my own but there is an example of that in the textbook in the book that you referred to um organize the organizational d dynamics uh, book that i wrote with uh yeah, and it's some work done by my colleague, Karen Norman, who's also at the uh, Kingston University into the falls in hospitals. So uh, what this particular hospital did was to take a nurse to work reflectively with, with nurses in wards where there's a very high incidence of uh, elderly patients falling over. So it's the biggest cause of death in hospitals, people falling over and killing themselves or hurting themselves or... And the, the incidence of falls in that particular hospital dropped by 48%. Wow, yeah. Over a two-year period. Uh, uh, and that was, it was hard work. So, so uh, that's very much uh, a model of, of what we've been talking about, of having to deal with difficult circumstances, talking to the nurses about their practice and what they thought might have happened if they left an elderly patient on the toilet and then answered an emergency call elsewhere. And... So you're facing up to things like shame and anxiety and identity questions. What kind of a nurse am I to have done that of conflict with doc between doctors and nurses and other professionals and all of those things. That was the, at the heart of that work. Right. And that nurse and presumably, yeah, presumably that nurse had a particular skill set as well that allowed her to open up those conversations in a particular way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she she was um, somebody who was um, 
very prepared to have the necessary conversations with people. Right. And how is that? So this is where I get this is where I get slightly uh, a question in my mind is. So you, you talked before about the, the problem of leaders thinking that they can create conditions. But in a sense, isn't what she's doing there creating a particular environment or a set of conditions for solutions to emerge or ideas? to emerge? I mean, I suppose you could. Uh, so let's not leap to the opposite pole and say that leaders have no influence at all. So leaders are particularly influential people who come to symbolize something about the work. So you could say that the nurse who was involved in this came to embody what good nurses should be doing. But what she's also doing is improvising with the groups that she's working with on a continuous basis and responding to them and working with them in a very granular way, responding to their particular concerns, their particular anxieties. So it goes on being an ensemble performance. So it doesn't reside just in the individual and their influence. It resides in the ability of that particularly highly skilled individual to work creatively on a daily basis, day in, day out, over a two-year period with different groups of people who will have different needs, different sets of anxieties. So it goes on being co-created, and I suppose that's the insight of complexity. So I think there's a particular tendency in the leadership literature to assume or to presume that everything's located in the leader. And there's no doubt that leaders are important and influential people. As we were discussing earlier with, with Theresa May, what Theresa May can sum up and what she can embody and what she can symbolize for people is very important because leaders play a very strong role in people's imaginative life and that's symbolic life if you like they come to symbolize something but then the task then is to go on recreating that and reimagining with groups of people what we as a group might become so it becomes a co-created future something that we're working on together in ensemble performances in the day-to-day -day work of getting things done together right so you might more accurately described her actions as, as ongoingly co-creating an environment in yes, which exactly. these issues emerge and, and, and exactly. authentic conversation yeah. happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes it won't go and sometimes it won't go well. So the leader needs to adapt as well in terms of what's going to work. What and what worked last week may not work next week. Right. Even and with that, the same group of people. And that leader with a different cohort of nurses may uh, may not have the same impact yeah and we did start conversations with other nurses uh, in uh, with with other um, uh, hospitals in other areas where we were trying to um do the same thing again and they were saying well you know what are the five things that we need to do or can you spell <laughs> out the, what's the tool what toolkit do we need to do this takeaways exactly so so we were really exercised in thinking about pinpointing exactly what we thought was going on. So all kinds of things are going on there. So it's a political process, it's an improvisational process, it involves very strong emotions. You have to find the right people to work with groups of people who are gonna be able to be skillful in all the ways we've described in this podcast today about hanging on to their own anxiety, sometimes expressing it, sometimes not, 
being able to read a group, being able to endure people's strong emotions like shame if they've fucked up in letting a patient fall over or something yeah. like that. You know, all of those things are going to be necessary. Yeah. It's not it's not an easy thing to describe, I guess. No, no. And certainly my own experience of me becoming better able to sit with groups and sit with people's anger, and I, I, that has been directly, at least in my subjective opinion, related to the work I've done on myself. So the more therapy and the more self-work I've done, the more able I am. So for me, it's not just been about a skill set to the extent I've acquired any of these skills. It's also been about the work I've done on my own history and baggage and so on. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. The other thing I thought we might touch on is this. I, I, mean, I, had, I had a call with somebody on Friday and, and he's a potential guest on the podcast and talked to him about you know, one of the themes in the podcast is, is complexity and that's something we sometimes touched on. Is that something you've got experience with? And his response was, oh, yes, you know, we do, we do use systems thinking in some of our work. So there seems to be a, a conflation between this idea of complexity thinking and, and systems thinking. And could we just tease that apart a bit for people? Okay, so um, briefly to explain why Ralph Stacey whose ideas we use uh, on the Dr. Manchin program at the University of Hertfordshire was such a pioneer in, in taking up the complexity sciences. So I would say briefly then, um, people became very interested in the complexity sciences uh, when it was possible to model complexity in nature on computers. So the most interesting models on computers are called complex adaptive systems, which are multi-agent models, often in the most advanced form, whether agents that are interacting with each other on the computer are diverse and they create evolutionary patterns. But this model is still a model and it's modeled on the computer and it is a system. So the majority literature on complexity still uh, stays with the idea of uh, an organization as a complex system or a society as a complex system. One of Ralph's radical insights was that human beings do not form systems. It's just a way of thinking. It's a very helpful way of thinking. Um, but it's just a way of thinking about the world. If you drop the idea of human beings creating a system, instead of looking for the abstractions, you pay attention to people and what they're actually doing together, what they say to each other, how they try and cooperate and conflict. So the idea of a system with a boundary doesn't help if you're trying to think about human beings and what they're doing worse he would argue, it covers over what people are doing and, and replaces it with, a, with an abstraction, a system with a boundary, no matter how permeable. Um, and people uh, get tied up in contortions, really. They start saying, well, yes, human beings do create a system, but it's a permeable system with an open boundary and there are nested systems within systems. It all gets terribly complex. And that was, a, that was also another insight of Norbert Elias, the sociologist that we talked about earlier. He argued that the idea of a system in terms of human beings is, is um, 
an image imported from biology into thinking about human beings and it's simply not helpful. So where is the boundary in human relationship? There isn't one. I mean, it's only bounded by the planet, if you like. Much better to think of patterns, to think of processes, to think of power relationships. Actually, the idea of the system gets in the way. So let's just drop the idea of a system because it also encourages the idea that it's a system you can control. There's some kind of lever you can pull and where all the boxes will align or they'll align in a different way. So I suppose one of the radical um, suggestions in the, in the perspective of complex responsive processes is that the idea of a system is simply unhelpful. So we've dropped it. Okay. People find that very threatening as well because it's an automatic, it's an automatic assumption to think that there are systems in the world and human beings form a system. Right, but I, I suppose people, why why these ideas get so close in people's mind is perhaps is when you think about it, you think about one thing or one agent affecting lots of other agents and then them affecting yeah. the agent back and. Um, and these reciprocal sort of feedback loops and relationships. And that sounds kind of similar to what you might be saying. And so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and various uh, manifestations of systems dynamics, for example, lose the connection cause and effect. You can see why that's, people would find that helpful. They think they're thinking about the same thing. But I suppose what we're doing so one key intellectual informant of the perspective of complex responsive processes is Norbert Elias. And the other key underpinning of, of what we talk about is informed by the pra by pragmatic philosophy, where we're interested in the communicative interaction of human beings, not forming anything outside of what they're doing together. There's nothing formed outside of my talking to you we're not producing a system in any way we're gesturing and responding to each other as feeling human bodies hmm. and the idea of a system is simply an, an abstraction and a distraction from what's going on right and i suppose that's what's radical about this that's why you use the word yeah. radical it's just saying just drop it just yeah take it out of the of the mental model of the thinking yeah. exactly yeah and, and even even as I say that, I can feel the the the, the leap that that um, sort of represents itself as. It's like yeah, I'm a trained electronic engineer, so you know I've got lots of how I think about the world is tied up with that. So yeah, and uh, we draw a lot of analogies from from uh, medicine and from engineering. So the sender receiver model of communication, for example, is very much based on. I'm a, I'm a, you're a receiver, I'm a sender, I, I encode a message in my brain, I verbalize it and I send that data to you, you receive it in your brain and decode it exactly as I meant it. So that sender-receiver model of communication is taken for granted. The pragmatic philosopher George Herbert Mead fundamentally challenged that idea that anything's being encoded and decoded and had a very physiological understanding of what communication is about that i'm gesture to you and at the same time I've, i evoke in my own body an anticipation of what i mean and i evoke in your body um 
and anticipation of what I mean. And together we gesture and respond to each other on an ongoing basis. And the meaning doesn't lie with me or with you. The meaning lies in the gesture and the response taken together. Now that's a fundamentally different and radical understanding of communication. So when politicians, for example, talk about sending out a clear message, where you can send out as clear a message as you like, you can't guarantee how it will be received and interpreted, how people will respond to your message. So the meaning of a message is the gesture and the response taken together, not on one side or on the other. And that, that's a very fundamental disruption of the sender-receiver model of communication. Right. And you're also suggesting, are you not, that the, the, however the, the group is manifesting in the moment of the sending is going to affect the sending itself. So Yeah, exactly that. So, 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 so actually the group co-creates the sending of the message, right? It's not just exactly the individual that. sending it. Exactly that. So I'm not an autonomous, rational individual making up my mind about what message to send. I'm already anticipating before I've even spoken. And the anticipation already shapes what I'm going to say. And as I'm saying it, I'm responding to it as I'm saying it myself, just as everybody else is responding to it. And everybody else is responding to it in their own particular way. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's no beginning and there's no end of gesture and response. It's continuous. And intuitively, that feels completely right I mean, if i'm standing in front of a group of you know burly thugs who for whatever reason hate me and i'm going to have a very different message that i send out than if i'm if i'm going to send the same ostensibly the same message to let's say you know a group of toddlers there's yep. i mean maybe i'm reducing it here but, I, but and yet we still cling on to this idea that no i'm i'm sending this this message let's go back to what we were saying a leader would doing what the nurse is doing in, in a group and you will have had this experience depending on the group of managers that you're working with even if you've got the same pattern even if you, you're delivering the same package of whatever it is that you deliver what the way you do it will be in anticipation of the particular group that you're working with so you're constantly improvising what it is that you're doing even if you're doing the same thing so it has been known for me to do the same seminar with different groups because I can't prepare every seminar differently, particularly if I'm doing things back to back. But even if I'm doing the same thing, the way I do it is a response to the group that I find myself part of. Right. And then I respond again to how they're responding to what I'm saying. I was, um, when my daughter graduated from Kent, uh, the Kent University uh, gave an honorary doctorate to David Suchet, the actor. He was he plays Poirot, and he he gave a very interesting um, graduation speech when he when he got his honorary doctorate about exactly that process. So night after night, you're doing the same play, you're, you're playing the same part in, in front of a different audience, and every night it's different because the audience responds in a different way. And he, he regarded his skill, his profession, as being able to respond in the moment to the way that the audience is, is taking up his, his role. 
And I think that that speaks very much to the idea of management or, or leadership of the constant improvisation and response, the complex response that's required in a group of people, even if it's the same group that you're working with day in, day out, that something gets co-created together in that gesture and the back and forth of gesture and response. And that takes us back to why it's such an issue to say, to define up front what the learning outcomes are going to be or yeah. send the PowerPoint and say, well, this is what was delivered. Yeah. I mean, you certainly tell people what, you, what you've told them, but what sense they've made of it, you can't really be sure. That's a pattern that emerges again and again on the Doctor of Management programme, I think, that um, we do give seminars on the weekends, as well as meeting in the tradition of the Institute Group Analysis. And sometimes you've said, something you've said has an effect on the student nine months later that they've been mulling it over, they haven't quite made sense of what you've said and suddenly something clicks with them and because of a life experience that they've had or something they've been reading or something they've been struggling with in their writing and suddenly they remember what you said in the seminar nine months ago or something else somebody said in the seminar even a year ago and suddenly it clicks. So you can never know when pe if people are going to learn and when they're going to learn. The other thing I feel we touch it because certainly my introduction to complexity was uh, through David's you know, Professor David Snowden and his Kinevin framework. And most of the people I talk to when the conversation of complexity does emerge and people have done some reading is that they will they will talk about Kinevin. And for those who and I've had Professor Snowden on the show, and he has has a has a framework where he describes different domains, one of which is complex, chaotic, complicated, and, and simple. And from what I understand, you you have a critique, or you and Ralph have a critique of, of Kinevin. I think it might be interesting for people to understand your perspective with, with relation to Kinevin. Um, well, Ralph, Ralph had his own diagram uh, about 20 years ago, which is, if you type um, Stacy diagram into Google, you'll see it pop up in its multiple manifestations. And, it's a similar kind of thing to the Canadian framework. And I suppose we've developed two critiques of it. The first would be, it still makes an assumption of the, um, the manager in control. So you can look at the framework and you can decide, is what I'm dealing with simple, complicated, complex or chaotic? So there's still that distance then with this Cartesian uh, diagram of somehow you're detached from what you're looking at and you make the choice about what it is. The second thing I suppose we're saying is that human interaction is always complex. So if you accept Mead's um, idea of gesture and response, even our simple communication now is a complex undertaking, more or less. So um, that's not, that doesn't mean to say that we don't routinize whole aspects of, of human life. I mean, simply to get to London, as I'm trying to do this afternoon, lots and lots of um, social life is routinized in a way that makes um, highly in interdependent Western societies function. Without that routinization, it wouldn't function. But that's underpinned by, as I was saying earlier, this enormously complex improvisation that's going on 
to make that routine routinization work. So um, we dropped the Stacy diagram for precisely that reason. It, it, it fed into the illusion of management control and it distracted, we felt, uh, us and other people from thinking about the com complex interactions that go on between human beings on the daily, on a minute by minute basis. I, I don't know what problem the, the Canavian diagrams. Sorry, you, I just missed that last bit of the sentence from it. I think we had a. I don't know what problem the Canadian framework or the Stacey diagram solves. Um, no, that's a good question. I suppose when I, the, the reason, the way in which I find it helpful is to think that there may be certain processes which may not involve a great deal of human engagement that we could describe and that we could give that to somebody or, or train somebody in a particular process. And we could have some outcome happen predictably as a result of that human being going through those steps. And to, and, and intuitively, that, that feels like there's some sense in that. And, and, and so as a way of understanding my world and saying, okay, well, there are certain activities that we can systemize to a high degree, and that would, will now enable us to have predictable outcomes. And, it's useful to understand that's true and that not all things are unpredictable or everything is uncertain, something like that. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't deny the first thing. Of course, we systematize all kinds of things. We have you know, manufacturing processes, we have software, we have um, routines that we undertake as human beings. All of those things are true, but notice how reassured you're feeling. Yeah, so yeah you exactly. Have nice, you have your nice two by two grid and that what you're doing is reassuring yourself you can be you can be quite you can be less anxious now because you think that there are aspects of the world which are not complex what a relief that is to us isn't it yeah. isn't it interesting isn't it interesting how we get caught up in them but, but, but just because it's emotionally more easy for me to integrate the idea of a some to some degree predictable system doesn't mean that that's somehow not truthful or yeah, no, and I've just agreed that. Yeah. yeah. There are manufacturing processes. We routinize all kinds of aspects of work. Um and and social life. And what I'm pointing to, I suppose, is the, the neglected complex hinterland of improvisation that's required to make even routinized human processes function. Right. And, and we only often become aware of it when that when there's a breakdown. Right. Okay. Okay. But you but but you would accept in from the the, the cause and effect perspective that certain systemized routines do have predictable outcomes. Now, if you put a certain yeah, human oh, at work oh, on, oh, through a certain process. Yeah, and, and we do have. Um, routinized uh, regimes as human beings, we call them habits. So if we had to reinvent all our actions all of the time and didn't develop habits, life would take a long time. You know? yeah. so, so, so Dewey was very interested in the idea of, John Dewey was very interested in the idea of, of habits. And he said they're basically shortcuts. We do routine, these, routine our, our lives 
even our assumptions about the world, our prejudices about the world are prejudgments. So if we had to create a new judgment about everything we experience, life would take a very long time. We wouldn't be able to function. So we exist in a world of habit and prejudice. But sometimes those habits and those prejudices can get in the way of dealing with what we need, need to deal with because all circumstances are, are new. So uh, we have to develop better judgment about when our habits serve us well and when they're an obstacle. And we often experience those um, moments in terms of breakdown. Something goes wrong with our habit or our routine that no longer functions well or serves well. And then the judgment has to be, is it simply a one-off episode? Is it a blip? Or are we, are we actually in a world where this habit is no longer useful? Mm. I'm just going back to your challenge. I, to be honest, I, was, I wasn't fully concentrating there because I think you had me on this idea of, oh, I can relax a bit now. Yep. When I think about you know, Kinevin and not all, I think you're right. I think a huge part of the appeal of Kinevin is the, mm. the, the message from somebody with you know authority in this field of complexity mm. who says, not everything is it's like, it's okay. Not everything's yep. complex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as you know, the, the equivalent is, uh, you know, you don't need quantum physics to be able to ride a bicycle. You know, what's wrong with Newtonian physics? until you read Karen Barad, who says that quantum physics is the norm and Newtonian physics is a simplification. Even riding a bicycle, you're engaged in quantum physics. You just don't need to know about that on a daily basis. Right, which I suppose might be another. So that, that, that's interesting. I said that raises another question is, you know, how much is it useful to know about any of this, right? I mean, but, um, yes, well, it, it depends uh, whether you go with Socrates or Hannah Arendt, I suppose, on that. So Socrates would argue that a life unexamined is not worth living, but Hannah Arendt pointed to the danger of thinking, because if you start thinking about things, then things begin to unravel. Right. <laughs> and if you think manage, management is about knowing and predicting and controlling, and some just what well, actually it's you know be influential but you can't control you might be in charge but you're not always in control you're responsible but you can't always know what the outcome is going to be that's a bit threatening can be a bit destabilizing right and and i've heard i've heard the critique of of stacy is that you know, is, is anti-managers or anti-managerialism and and i don't think from having read now a couple of these books in depth i'm i'm not getting so much of that i, I mean on first blush maybe i would have had that impression but having read more now i'm getting to a sense that that's that's not the message right yeah I, 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 uh, the, well there's a difference between being anti-management and being anti-manager i realize that as i said that yeah yeah, the, the, yeah, the yeah. I, it's it's hard to know what to say about the idea that stacy is anti or complex responsive processes is anti-management because we work with managers all the time i've got people queuing up to come on my program so if we were anti-management, I guess we wouldn't be as, we've been running the program for 20 years, I guess we wouldn't be successful and people wouldn't be reading our books and our articles. Anti-managerial uh, is, I would say, we are. So if, if you think that, um, um, that management is a science which can be taught 
in a way uh, where um, sets of best practices or certain tools and techniques are universally applicable in all circumstances, then yes, it's anti-managerial, but not anti-management, I would say. It's about enhancing managers and, and the business of management rather than saying we don't need managers. I've no idea how that idea arose, really. No, nor do I, but I suppose what I might infer is it, it, if there's a suggestion in this that somehow managers are, are unable to control or predict you know, at all what might happen in their organisations, then that may be taken as an attack against managers if that if that was a straw man i suppose created of of this work yeah 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 but my interpretation is that you've got this idea that of the, of the gesture of the leader or the manager and that does that is taken up by those who are influenced by that manager or leader and does have some impact it's just that the way that that gets you know implemented or understood or interpreted in to use your jargon, the local interactions of those people um, influenced by the manager or the leader, we, we can't predict. Or is that correct? Yeah, uh, and also something you alluded to as well, that the manager themselves is influenced by the group that they're managing and probably by yes. groups beyond the group that they're managing. So, so there's, there's nobody, not even the President of the United States, who's uninfluenced by other people. Right. But the skill so if of... You like, there's a game of games going on and we're all caught up in the game of games sometimes it's getting the thrones so there's nobody who stands separate from and can influence in a predictable way a group of people because they in turn are being influenced the way that they're trying to influence is being influenced yeah um, which comes to mind a little bit, uh, the, the process that it appeared that Trump went through like during his, uh, his campaign. And that is he would sort of test out these motifs, you know, like the, the locker up, right? And he would, he would sense what, what response he would get from the crowd. And that, I think that was obviously one of the ones that he stuck with. But from my understanding, you know, he tried sort of a dozen of these different slogans and, at his rallies until he found the the three or four that really resonated yeah. um, and you know, what was it? Uh, drain the swamp was another one and so on. And it seemed to me that there was something of this going on in the way he was interacting there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But he may have been unconsciously <laughs> playing on, 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 on this dynamic here. Yeah. Yeah. Both consciously and unconsciously probably. Yeah. 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 Um, but there's no doubt that he had impact, right? What you do, whatever you make of the man, he he had he had impact with his communication, and he had influence. Right? Yeah, and you could say that his um, his gesturing in a way that um, made visible pre-existing tendencies, perhaps perhaps some of the baser instincts of groups of human beings to blame people outside their group for, for their problems, for example. And that's been a pattern in human relating for centuries. Doesn't just start with, with Donald Trump. So the idea that you can get people going by appealing to a dangerous outsider has been around for a, a very long time. And there's brought about 
human social catastrophes. So, so it, it's not um, it's not a unique or a novel strategy that he was that he was doing. I mean, he's he's evoking something that occurs in human groups and, and always has done. Mm. Yeah, no, that's another another aspect to it. Sure. Yeah. Um, the other part of this, I thought we'd touch on. You know, maybe this this before we we close out um, is. Um, some of the you've already alluded to some of the underpinnings of of sociologists and um from a philosophical standpoint you contrast um and i feel like i'm on slightly shaking ground hey as i said i'm a, i'm an engineer not a philosopher um of kant and and hegel and how their perspectives have influenced your thinking and could you know I, i'm guessing that most of our audience don't have you know a, a sort of deep philosophical education but Certainly, I found some of that quite useful to consider, and I think it may be useful for the audience as well. So, I suppose the the twin the twin uh, threads of uh, a Kantian or Hegelian perspective still are still with us in the twenty first century. So, I suppose um, very simplistically. Is a proponent of the rational autonomous. He was also one of the uh, original formulators of what we take to be systems theory, with his idea of the, the regulative idea of thinking that nature could be thought of as a system made up of parts, and it's the interaction of the parts which form the whole. And you can see there the roots of of systems thinking in that. But he also um, offered a warning that we couldn't think of ourselves as being parts of a whole because we are rational autonomous individuals so we can never be a part of a whole which serves something outside of our own autonomy but we in taking up the idea of systems thinking we've forgotten that warning from Kant what we take from Hegel particularly in the work of um, Norbert Elias and the pragmatists is that the idea of humans as being intersubjectively formed i am a self because there are other selves and also human beings as historical beings so one way of thinking about it is that we're born into a world where there's already a play going on and that you're invited to take up a role in that play in a particular country at a particular time speaking a particular language with particular cultural assumptions so the idea of um, making up your own mind about what you think is going on in the world is already, if you like, compromised by the fact that you're socially formed. Norbert Elias is also Hegelian, so that he, he argued then that there's nowhere to stand outside the social and take a God's eye view of what's going on. You can never be entirely objective about the social. In fact, he argued that subjective and objective are actually quite unhelpful we are always he said either involved or detached in an amalgam we can't be totally involved although i guess you would say that a toddler is totally involved in their world and maybe a psychopath is more detached than most from what's going on but most of the time we're both involved in and detached about what's going on that's the ability to be involved in something and to catch ourselves reflecting on it at the same time. So I suppose part of the training 
we're giving people on the Doctor of Management program is encouraging them to, to be more detached about their involvement. It's a paradox. And that's, that's the process of reflection and reflexivity. To be caught up in something and to, a, to be able to catch oneself noticing how one is caught up in something. Right. If, if, if the students on the Doctor of Management program have one thing in common is that all of their theses are extended pieces of reflexivity. Being involved in something and coming to reflect and become reflexive about the social phenomenon that they've been involved in. So that's, that's where Hegel influences the work about the intersubjectively formed self. We become who we are because of the groups that we belong to and their histories and our history with them. We become a self because we interact on a, on a minute by minute basis with other selves. We are socially formed, if you like, social through and through. Right. Right. And again, contrasting with Kant, that that somehow we we can step aside from that. Yeah. So. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a much longer discussion. So. <laughs> <laughs> Although Kant, Kant himself said that we can never know that the world in itself, we can never know the noumena, we can only know the phenomena, things that appear. Yeah. So he, he also argued that you can't really know reality. But the, the kind of rational, autonomous individual idea is very much derived from Kant. Right. And was an was an enlightenment ideal, if you like. Right. And but I suppose there's been great benefits from that style of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the liberalism that you were talking about at the beginning of this discussion is very much rooted in Kantian ideals and universals, universal declaration of human rights. You would would you, you could argue is very much derived from Kant. Right. L liberalism is permeated with, with the idea of rational autonomous individuals enjoying universal rights. So yeah, we have we have much to thank Kant for. Right. Yeah. And it's not the only and it's not the only useful way to think about our existence <laughs> yeah that's right um because I, I, I suppose that's what's emerging for me here is that we can we can allow ourselves to abstract and think about universal values and ideals and we, we can't stop ourselves from abstracting <laughs> and, and idealizing <laughs> uh, uh, and that's one of the facilities of of human being even to use language is the first is the first step of ab abstraction if you like and then to form ideas and concepts from language is the second step of abstraction we can't we do it all the time but sometimes we proceed as though those abstractions are real let's go back to the systems discussion for example we start talking about organizations as if they're systems 
and those ideas become realities to us and it becomes hard to challenge them right yeah and and okay and you can see that then in society is it it becomes like well it, we've got this society that's a system and we we ought to be able to organize it along these ideals yeah and there are systemic ways of intervening in society which bring about the the outcomes that we want. But I, I used to um, look at the language that some of the politicians used in some of my seminars with students. And um, so the idea of broken Britain, which I think was um, three elections back, David Cannon is going on about broken Britain. So there you have it in in and that language is the idea of Britain as a whole, as some kind of machine which is broken, which you can fix. And David Cameron's your man to fix it. He just needs to tighten that nut and replace that thing there, and then Britain becomes functioning again. So it's, it's an abstraction, it's a simplification, it's also a piece of political rhetoric, of course, and all of that is intertwined. But ways of thinking and talking about the world very often draw on systemic analogies from engineering or from medicine you might think of the the britain as a, as a body which is sick and it needs a particular kind of medicine to make it better again so all of those um, analogies from other disciplines are imported into thinking about what human beings are doing together and it's just a question of becoming a bit more aware of those and thinking about how helpful they are and whether there are more helpful ways of talking about what's going on between us. Yeah. Right. And then, and I think that this focus on the, on the body, I mean, you use that language a lot in your, your work is this idea that we're a body responding and, mm. and that I suppose hints at this idea that feelings that matter and the body matters. And mm. it's, it's not just about the abstractions we might create in our heads. Yep. Um, and that's not to say that abstractions aren't important. I mean, that's what's... Yeah. We, we, can't, we can't deal with each other without talking in abstract language. We do it all the time. It's yeah. a necessary and helpful thing. But we also need to be able to catch ourselves using them and think about when they're more or less helpful. Great. Maybe that sort of forms a, a conclusion to the to the conversation okay um I say, i've been really looking forward to this conversation and uh, i've thoroughly enjoyed it it's uh, yeah me too it's, it's sort of been nice to chew the cud yes um well so you i know you've got a blog we'll put some links to the books um to your blog to your to the to the program at, at hertfordshire is that is that useful yeah all useful thanks very much um, so um anything else we should for those and i'm just thinking for those listening as well is there any anything else you would point them at in terms of wanting to go deeper with any of these topics um we have an annual conference as well next year it's going to be may 17th to 19th um where it's not run like an academic conference or we, although there might be an ac academic speaker it's a mixture of consultants practitioners academics people working in organizations who are interested in these ideas of complexity and the way we take them up in particular, the University of Hertfordshire come together and meet and talk about what's going on in their worlds. That's always a, a very good event. 
And uh, so if people were to, to, to search that, what would they they Google to? We always we always advertise it on the blog. So if you put a link to the blog, um, um, in, a, in the next 10 days or so, I'll be advertising speakers for next year's conference, okay. which will be on some theme of complexity. So the links to the blog will be enough if people are interested. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much once again. Enjoy your rest of your day in Oxford. And uh, Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much thank for inviting you. me. I enjoyed it. No, no problem. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.